0: A canny and charismatic politician who rose to become third vice president of the new United States, Aaron Burr seemed to throw it all away in 1805 and 1806 in an extraordinary attempt to lead a secession of the American West. American Emperor, the new book by today's speaker, traces Burr from the threshold of the presidency in the contested election of 1800 through his famous duel with Alexander Hamilton and then across the American West as he schemed with foreign ambassadors, the traitorous general in chief of the army, and future presidents, including Andrew Jackson. His immense ambition was matched by his undisguised contempt for Thomas Jefferson, a president he thought ineffective and unwise. The indecisive Jefferson finally did have Burr arrested for his activities and charged with treason. Burr led his own legal defense in a historic treason trial here in Richmond, before Chief Justice John Marshall. He did win an acquittal and his freedom. After practicing law for more than 25 years, our speaker today, David O. Stewart, turned to writing history, though he still does practice law as well in Washington, D.C. His first book, The Summer of 1787, The Men Who Invented the Constitution, was a Washington Post bestseller, and won the Washington Writing Award as Best Book of 2007. Two years later, Impeached, the Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy was a Davis Kid bestseller. David's latest work is American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America. He's also president of the Washington Independent Review of Books, an online book review. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to David Stewart who will speak to us about American Emperor Aaron Burr's challenge to Jefferson's America.
1: Thank you very much uh, for that kind introduction, and thank you all for coming out. Um, and uh, we just won't talk about the weather. Um, I do get asked uh, occasionally, why did I pick Burr, um, and There's one review, I think, which actually captured my thinking. And, you know, get one review was better than you often get. Um, And it really described this as two parts adventure story and one part courtroom thriller. It is just an astonishing story. uh, And uh, Burr is a remarkable character. And that really is what drove me and and, and drew me in. But before I get into this remarkable tale, I do want to sort of set the ground, uh, uh, d- d- just some, some basic uh, common information about two things. The first is uh, uh, what the country was like in 1805. We do tend to think of the United States as the continental uh, giant, but in 1805, it was a very different country. Uh, the, the light gray uh, states, of course, are the original 13 states plus three that had joined the Union, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, those were the west, they were over the Appalachian Mountains. Um, And then uh, you get into the territories out west, uh, which Indiana and Mississippi, and across the Mississippi now, just in 1803, two years before, we had purchased that land from the French. So that had just become part of the country, and it was so new and so unexplored that we actually didn't know the boundaries. Nobody knew what the western border was. There were no maps. And I enjoy this as a a lawyer. Uh, Many of you, of course, have purchased property in your time, and you know that it's very important to get an accurate description of what you're buying, so you know exactly what you are buying and what you own and other people don't. So you get the meets and bounds, and it's all very precise. Well, they couldn't do that when we bought Louisiana because nobody knew. So what the French wrote in the treaty was, we hereby sell to the United States whatever we got from Spain in 1763. Um, The Spaniards still owned a lot of territory, of course, all of the uh, far west here and uh, Florida and then obviously Mexico, all the way down to the end of South America. Um, And, That was territory that uh, was going to be at the center of our story. There was a lot of unrest in the country, and that's the other piece of this I want to underscore at the beginning. Again, we think of the great nation we've known all our lives. Well, in 1805, the Constitution had been in effect for less than uh, 20 years. Aaron Burr was born a subject to the British King. Uh, The map of North America had been redrawn a number of times in his lifetime. Uh, In the 1790s, we had two rebellions in this country, both in Pennsylvania, the Whiskey Rebellion and the Freeze Rebellion. Both were uh, led by people who didn't want to pay taxes. Americans have not changed a great deal. Um, We also uh, uh, had a secession movement in New England just in 1804. And in 1805, Burr actually was visited by several leading politicians, uh, senators from New England who asked him to join their secession movement uh, and to lead New York, which was where Burr was living at the time, into secession with them. Now out west, and west, I'm going to use this term a lot, but west really doesn't mean the far west which we're used to. I'm not getting, there we are. Um, It's really Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, this area here. There had been talk of secession out there for 20 years, largely because it had arisen during the time when we didn't control New Orleans, so all the trade that went down the rivers, and the rivers were the key to economic development out there, all went through a foreign country, through Spain. We had just ended that by purchasing uh, Louisiana and New Orleans, but there was still this uh, residue of feeling that their life was out west, it wasn't connected to the Atlantic states, and it was described often as the Atlantic states and the western states. So there, there was a, a real uh, distancing. Indeed, one of the, there were a number of parts of the story that shocked me as I researched it, but one that certainly did was uh, there are two letters written by President Jefferson in 1804, and I'll just quote from one of them. He says roughly the same thing in both of them. Um, where he really expresses what I can only describe as bland indifference to the prospect of the secession of the West. He says, whether we remain in one Confederacy or form into Atlantic and Mississippi Confederacies, I believe not very important to the happiness of either part. Those of the Western Confederacy will be as much our children and descendants as those of the Eastern, and I feel myself as much identified with that country in future time as with this. That's sort of an astonishing thing for a president of the United States to say. He's supposed to be holding us together. You know, imagine if Barack Obama were to say tomorrow, well, if California wants to go its own way, whatever. Um, And into this fluid situation, into this not very well established... Oh, I'm sorry, I want to cover one other uh, quick story about how unsettled things were, just the election of 1800, which some of you will know about, the election of the president was a real problem under the Constitution. I wrote a book about writing the Constitution. The Constitution is wonderful, but they messed up on a few things. And one of the things they messed up on was electing the president. first two elections was George Washington. You couldn't mess that up. But in 1796, you have Adams running against Jefferson, and you get this odd outcome where Adams is elected president and his opponent becomes vice president. And that's because under the Constitution, you don't vote separately for president and vice president. We have electors, which we still have, and they each cast two votes for president. And whoever finishes first becomes president, whoever finishes second becomes vice president. So if Adams had died in office, his opponent would have become president. So everybody thought that was a bad arrangement. So when they get to the 1800 election, The Federalists and the Republicans all tell their electors, vote for our candidates for President and Vice President. Burr and Jefferson, Jefferson and Burr are the candidates for the Republicans, the electors go in and slavishly vote for each of them. Now, one person should have not voted for Burr, should have voted for the 19th century equivalent of Mickey Mouse, but they didn't. So Burr and Jefferson ended up tied, 73 to 73. Nobody won. So the election was thrown into the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, the Federalists suddenly discover that they really like Burr. They have to choose between those two. They can't put one of their own people up, but they start voting for Burr. First election in the House, first ballot in the House of Representatives, it's another tie. And they take another ballot, another tie. They tie 35 times for a week. This is a true constitutional crisis. They don't know what's going to happen. What happens if John Adams' term runs out and they haven't yet picked the president? Does the president pro tem of the Senate become president? Does Adams get another couple of days just to hang around? It really is (laughs) puzzling. Finally, Burr writes a letter, which he could have written a long time before, saying nobody should vote for me and Jefferson wins, which everybody acknowledges that he was supposed to be the presidential candidate. The Constitution is a creaky thing at this time. We're still sort of on the shakedown cruise. This problem was fixed to some extent in the 12th Amendment, although the Electoral College is still a bit odd. But that's not our subject today. Um, Into this uncertain uh, and evolving uh, picture, we get Aaron Burr. I like this image of Burr because it captures some of his military qualities. He had a very military air. Uh, He had been a very successful soldier during uh, the Revolutionary War, became a colonel Uh, when he was 21. He was a colonel. He volunteered at the age of 19. He commanded a a brigade at the uh, Battle of Monmouth. Uh, And men who served with him in the war always held him in the highest esteem Uh, and through his life, whether he was a senator from New York or vice president, he was always addressed as Colonel Burr. It was a title that fit him and that he liked. He was a man of action. He was not a man of ideas. I mean, many of our, the founding fathers were, you know, really pretty deep thinkers. They were philosophers, and they could sit down and toss off an essay on the proper structure of the legislature and be pretty interesting on it. It Was not Burr's taste. He could do it if he had to, but it was not what he, uh, not his orientation. Uh, he was politically successful after the war. Uh, became Attorney General of New York, became Senator, uh, and as I described, uh, Vice President. The election of 1800 uh, demonstrated a bit his unconventional, some of his unconventional qualities, and he always was a little unconventional. He came from a very distinguished family. His father was President of the College of New Jersey. His grandfather was also President of the College of New Jersey, was the great theologian, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, who said, famously, that uh, we are all uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, it was a harsh time. Um, and Burr uh, was a, a man of great intellectual accomplishment, but there was always something a little different about him. And in the election of 1800, he demonstrated part of that because it was a time when people didn't run for office. They stood for office. You, it was a little tacky to actually ask somebody for your vote. Well, Burr was too ambitious and too impatient to put up with that, and he organized the first real canvas we ever had in this country in New York City. He had poll workers living at his house for a month. He went door-to-door uh, soliciting votes, and when the votes were finally counted, he had uh, shellacked the Federalists, which, who were led by Aaron, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, carried New York by a big margin, which meant that uh, the Republicans carried New York State, which meant Jefferson and Burr were elected. So, he was uh, an iconoclast in a lot of ways. Um, Indeed, he comes to us, and I think somewhat fairly, as sort of the bad boy of the founding. Um, He knew his contemporaries, of course, and he did not view them in the same sort of mythological way that sometimes they are portrayed today. Um, He was pretty clear that he thought General Washington wasn't very smart, Um, that he thought um, Alexander Hamilton was a clever fellow but really not presentable, and that he thought Jefferson was a coward. Um, He made unconventional choices in his personal life. Uh, He married a woman uh, 10 years older than he who was the widow of a British officer. Um, In 1782, it took some guts to marry the widow of a British officer. Indeed, when they started keeping company, she was not yet a widow. Um, But uh, The the demise of her first husband is in no way attributable to Burr. Um, He was an advocate of women's rights. Uh, He kept a framed uh, portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft, the great advocate of women's rights in England, over his fireplace, and he thought women had all the talents and maybe more than all the talents of men. Um, My wife uh, recently gave me that she's a politician and very uh, big on female achievement, and she recently read me that the problem with uh, wanting to have the same uh, achievements as men is that women shouldn't aim so low. Um, (laughs) But uh, Burr uh, insisted that his daughter, uh, Theodosia, and this is an image of Theodosia that she be educated as any uh, young man of privilege would have been educated. And when people met her, they were dazzled by her, frankly, that she was thought to be the best educated and most accomplished young woman in America. Um, it must also be said that uh, Burr was an avid ladies man. Um he admired all aspects of uh, women. Uh, he uh, His wife died when he was 30. His first wife died when he was 37, and he then was a single gentleman for 40 years, and uh, by all accounts uh, uh, enjoyed that time. He, uh, (laughs) after he died, one of his longtime friends said, "It's just astonishing that Colonel Burr achieved as much as he did in life, in view of all the time he spent pursuing women." Um, And indeed, there is about Burr, there are elements that are so hard to capture. Uh, he was a man, it is clear of great charisma, but over the centuries, charisma is such a uniquely personal thing, it's hard to convey. I have a a, a paragraph in the book distilling all of the many tributes to his eyes, his transfixing, mesmerizing eyes that I came upon, many written by women, it must be said. Um, And there clearly was a magnetic quality to the guy. He was a small man. He was slender. He wasn't particularly boisterous or loud. Um, when you compare him to his contemporaries and the different types of charisma we know about them, you know General Washington. Well, he was gigantic. You know, he w- his reputation was gigantic. He was personally gigantic. I mean, he just walked into the room and nobody looked anywhere else. Um, Hamilton had a big personality. He would walk into the room and declaim in a loud voice and tell stories. If he'd had enough to drink he'd jump up on the table and start singing songs. Um, Burr was not like that. He was reserved. He was courteous. He was witty. uh, Very uh, Plainly enjoyed a good time. But there was an understated quality to him and there was a sense of mystery and secrets which is sort of essential to this story. He was famous as a lawyer for telling his colleagues, and he was an extraordinarily good lawyer, uh, that things written remain. And he meant that as a warning. (laughs) So he didn't write much down. Uh, His collected political correspondence fills two volumes, Hamilton's fills 35 volumes, and Burr lived 30 years longer. And that's actually not a coincidence. So there is about Burr something, th- th- this sense of mystery and secrecy is, it, it enhances this story and, and makes it d- tough on historians, frankly, people who want to write about him. Um, okay, 1804 was Aaron Burr's very bad year. Um, it starts off with him being dropped from the ticket for re-election uh, as vice president, that's not a shock. Uh, He hasn't been getting along with Jefferson at all, but it's a disappointment. Uh, Burr was the third vice president. The first two vice presidents became president. Burr plainly thought he would make a great president and expected to become president, and this was a setback, a clear setback. So he pretty quickly announces that he's going to run for governor of New York and rehabilitate his uh, political fortunes. He runs. Uh, He gets uh, thumped. He loses by the largest uh, margin yet in uh, that state. Um, And while he is uh, nursing that wound, he runs across a newspaper story about a statement that Alexander Hamilton has made about him. Now, Hamilton and he have been sort of in parallel through their whole lives. Uh, They're both Continental Army officers. They're both young lawyers in New York. They're both rising politicians. They end up in opposing parties and Hamilton does not admire Burr. He develops a shtick that he says about Burr at the drop of a hat. He says these things for a period of 12 years, beginning in 1792 when Burr defeats Hamilton's father-in-law for the Senate. There seems to be a connection there. Um, And he says that Burr is corrupt, that Burr is a liar, and that Burr is power-mad. He calls him an embryo Caesar and he says these things over and over. What's interesting to me is I never found any evidence, and there is none that anybody can point to, that Burr ever said anything unpleasant about Hamilton. In any event, after this 1804 election for governor of New York, he runs into the, he finds this newspaper story where Hamilton has said that Mr. Burr is corrupt, a liar, and power mad. It's the usual stuff. Then he adds, According to the newspaper piece, and I hold an opinion still more despicable about him. Now, that does not strike the modern era as a terrible thing. I mean, despicable is not good, but, you know, it's a word. In that era, despicable implied sexual perversion. Please don't press me, it covered a range of sexual perversions. (laughs) So we don't know exactly what was the allegation. And people have speculated on that. But, Burr, Uh, responded angrily. He wrote a very stiff note to Hamilton, basically saying, you must retract that, explain it, or meet me on a field of honor, Uh, a duel. Uh, Hamilton sort of wrote him a mealy-mouthed response. They went back and forth for three weeks uh, with uh, increasingly testy notes to each other through their seconds, and ultimately they did, of course, fight the duel. Um, I love this image of the duel. It's the one I grew up with as a boy uh, in in history books and uh, in the 19th century. It was written, uh, created in the 19th century and is in all the books. And what I admire most about it is Hamilton is grabbing his head even though he's been shot in the stomach. (laughs) Um, The the artist appears to have been misinformed. Um, But we all know that Hamilton lost the duel Um, It's by no means clear that Burr won the duel. Uh, Within a short period of time, Burr is astonished and appalled to discover that he has made Hamilton a great hero, a martyr, and that he's been indicted for murder. His political enemies in New York immediately uh, convene a grand jury and they bring back an indictment for murder. And then Burr is originally from New Jersey. His friends in New Jersey indict him for murder. So he's under indictment in two states. He actually goes off on the lam. And it's important to stress, people tend to forget this, he was vice president still. (laughs) So he rushes down to South Georgia where he uh, stays with a friend for a few weeks hoping things will simmer down. They do simmer down a bit. He's still under indictment but the marshals are not coming after him. Uh, So he makes his way back to Washington D.C. where he still has four months left to his term and he presides over the Senate. This disturbs some people um, to have a man under indictment for murder who is presiding over the Senate. Um, And he is, in fact, subject to extradition, should anybody ever have gone to that trouble to go face these murder charges, but nobody does. That would be a different story. Um, And at the end of his term, which is in March of 1805, Aaron Burr has gotten the message that conventional paths to political power, to glory, to honor are closed to him at this point, and he's going to have to do something different if he wants to make his way. He's 48 years old now. He is not ready to hang it up. Um, And like so many Americans, when his life went south, he headed west. So when he leaves office, he makes a six-month journey. Actually, it's closer to seven. Out west. Now this map uh, the, the dotted line is his outbound trip, and the solid line is his trip back. The dotted line roughly follows. Once he hits the Ohio River west of Pittsburgh, he's going down the rivers. That was always the best way to travel. Um, that, well, there were no r- decent roads anywhere. Um, but when he got down in New Orleans, he had to come back uh, over land. Going upriver was not a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it was very... Uh, tough going, camping out, eating what what you kill, Uh, and Burr who had proved himself as a very tough soldier as a young man, turned out in his late forties he was still a tough guy. It's a little hard to imagine people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison doing this, living in the woods for three months, Um, but for Burr uh, it was not a problem. While he was on this journey, he met with most of the prominent people in the West. Uh, He also met with plenty who weren't. Uh, A lot of the people out west at this time were former Continental Army officers. During the war, we did a particularly terrible job of paying our soldiers. And one of the ways we paid them off after the war was to give them land out west. So many moved out west, so Burr was able to call on many of his former colleagues and recruit them for this expedition that he was up to that he was trying to organize. And I'm going to keep talking about the expedition. He met with, as I said, a number of prominent men, two future presidents, William Henry Harrison and Andrew Jackson. Uh, he met with three senators. He met with a number of militia generals. Burr always liked militia generals. He met with a man I'm going to come back to named Harman Blennerhassett. Uh, he was an Irish émigré. Uh, he'd had, uh, had to leave Ireland because he married his niece. He settled on an island that he purchased in the Ohio River. It's still there, called Blennerhassett Island, across from Parkersburg, West Virginia. And Blennerhassett hassett was sort of an aimless fellow with a little more money than he knew what to do with, and Aaron Burr could always help with people like that. <laughs> um, but the most important person he met with was someone he'd already known. It's this gentleman who Teddy Roosevelt referred to as the most despicable character in American history. He was the general in chief of our army, James Wilkinson. He also, at this time, was a secret agent in the pay of the King of Spain. And he actually was a secret agent for 20 years. Uh, He received bribes on a regular basis in different forms, sometimes cash, sometimes trade privileges, sometimes uh, commodities. And in return, he wrote them reports on American military and political events. I'm not sure the Spaniards ever really got their money's worth. I've read these reports. They're not at the level of revelation. But it was an astonishing relationship. He was, in fact, secret agent number 13. And his reports went to numero uno. It is very much a 19th century version of Get Smart. It's quite odd. I did finally conclude that Wilkinson was more dangerous than a buffoon, and he did come across as a buffoon often. When I read a report from shortly before this period, when he tells the Spaniards about the Lewis and Clark expedition and recommends that Lewis and Clark be arrested and taken to Mexico City and thrown in jail, and he also tells them about Daniel Boone's settlement on the Missouri River and says that they should bust up Boone's settlement and send them settlers back across the Mississippi River and I'm sorry you cannot trash Lewis and Clark and Daniel Boone and not be a lousy guy. Um, So he is a florid hard-drinking fellow. Um, He does come across as a buffoon often. Uh, He was fond of fancy uniforms. Uh, He didn't have many military achievements. Uh, It was said of him, he was really head of the army because nobody else wanted the job the army was very small. Jefferson didn't like having an army. Um, he shrunk it down to 3,000 men. Uh, it was said of, uh, he, he was court martialed on several occasions, and it was said of uh, Wilkinson that he had never won a battle or lost an investigation. Um, he, and there is this one episode, uh, let, let me tell you. Uh, He was sent by Jefferson to uh, receive the Louisiana Territory from the French down in New Orleans. There would be a formal ceremony in December of 1803. And it's a very tense moment because most of the people in New Orleans, there's 15,000 people there, most of them are French speakers. They're called Creoles. Uh, They don't want to be part of the United States. It's a foreign country. It's a foreign language, a foreign legal system. Nothing about it is appealing to them. Um, So they're sullen and there's uh, resentment. So... They have a big event, uh, a a party to celebrate this uh, event, and there's an orchestra playing for everybody to dance, and the orchestra is very carefully instructed to play one French song and one American song and one French song and one American song to keep the peace. And uh, after Wilkinson is there for a short time, he proclaims that there should be two American songs in a row, and he's the general, so they play a second American song. One of the oddnesses of the story is the second American song is "Rule Britannia, um, <laughs> which, which presumably is selected for its ability to annoy French people more than it's any American character of it. Um, when they finish, uh, the Creoles jump to their feet and belt out a couple of choruses of La Marseillaise, at which point a fistfight breaks out. There's a gen- general brawl, and Wilkinson leads the Americans out of the chamber in triumph. And I know you're all thinking, and I have this overly cinematic uh, imagination that the only thing missing is Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, Um, (laughs) but that gives you a flavor for why people thought Wilkinson was a buffoon, and why I do think Burr tended to underestimate him. Wilkinson and Burr do reach agreement on the broad outlines of a plan, and it is an outrageous one. It's for an expedition, and I always in the book tried to refer to it as an expedition, not a conspiracy. People often talk about the Burr conspiracy, and I object to that. Um, Conspiracies are supposed to be secret, and thousands of people knew about this. It it was in the newspapers, so it's not a conspiracy. Um, Burr's job was to recruit uh, volunteers for this expedition, and Wilkinson was supposed to bring the Army or what elements of the army he could bring. Um, And when he was recruiting people for the expedition, Burr would tell them versions of the following narrative, that the Atlantic states were exploiting the western states, and that the west in 1805 stood with respect to the Atlantic states in the same position that the original 13 colonies had with respect to England in 1776. Think about that. This is a former Vice President of the United States basically saying, you should rebel. He tells them that the separation of the West from the United States is inevitable. He says that war with Spain over Mexico is highly desirable. He would consider it a great honor to lead Americans into Mexico City and to liberate Mexico. Liberate is a term you have to sort of accept on, uh, on its own. Uh, plainly, Americans were enticed by the prospect of Mexican land and Florida land. Uh, Also, at this time, there were riches in Mexico. Mexico was producing two-thirds of the world's silver. And this was not lost on Burr or the people he was trying to recruit. And there is a notion, I passed over this too quickly, this notion of liberation. There is a notion that we're going to export democracy, which, frankly, is still a powerful uh, concept in American political life. Uh, He talked about the appropriateness of an insurrection in New Orleans. Uh, indeed, when he met with the British ambassador, and he met with the British ambassador to the United States and, basically, uh, and asked him to loan him 100,000 pounds for this expedition, several million dollars in today's money, and he also asked him to send a British fleet, a Royal Navy fleet, to New Orleans to meet him there. Doesn't sound like a Pacific enterprise. And he says to the ambassador, of course, if I succeed, the United States will dissolve. There has been confusion about Burr's motives. Uh, and it's because he said different things to different people. There's a wonderful reminiscence by a fellow named Benjamin Latrobe, who's a great architect and knew Burr and his circle and all of the people of the era. And He writes, many years later, many is the time I have sat with Burr's former friends, all of whom rude the day that they had ever met Colonel Burr, all of whom had been basically euchred by Colonel Burr, uh, duped by him, and all in their own special way. Burr could listen to what they wanted to hear and tell them what they wanted to hear. And that has created this matrix of possible outcomes. And... Again, lapsing into my cinematic mode, what I found myself thinking of Burr like the Marlon Brando character in the 50s movie, uh, The Wild Ones. This is where Brando's at the head of a motorcycle gang that takes over a little town in California and they sort of take it over in a fairly quaint fashion. And halfway through the movie, this sweet young thing from the town says to Brando, you know, Johnny, you know, so what are you rebelling against? And Brando says, well, what do you got? <laughs> and I think with Burr, that was, there's a flavor of that. He's just looking to do something special, something outrageous, something that will make sure he is remembered. There is a concept at this time, which others of the founding fathers were open about, certainly Washington and Adams, uh, of fame. And it wasn't sort of the tinsel celebrityhood we think of today with people named Brittany and of that ilk, but fame was a measure of your worth, was a mark of your character. People knew who you were. You left a footprint in history because you were worthy. And Burr burned for that and he wasn't going to achieve it, he thought the way he should have in the United States as it was configured, so he was going to go off and find some other way to be great. If it meant liberating Florida and Mexico and having them become part of the United States, fine. If it meant creating a new nation down there, that would be fine too. If it meant the western states would secede, even better. But Aaron Burr was going to do something that nobody could ever forget. Now the expedition finally launches in late 1806 and it is ultimately uh, an epic botch. Uh, They do leave uh, from Blennerhassett Island so it's right where sort of the southeastern uh, edge of uh, Ohio is just above Cincinnati in that uh, map Um, but Burr is not there at the time when they gather there. And that's because he's run into some uh, potholes. He has ordered boats sufficient to carry 1,500 men down the rivers. 1,500 armed men passing through any part of the United States would have controlled that part of the country. The entire army was 3,000 men. And that was spread out over the whole country. Um, But the potholes... Caused him a lot of trouble. First, was a prosecutor in Kentucky tried to prosecute him. I said this was not a secret. It was in the newspapers that he was organizing this expedition, that he was, and things were different things were said about it that he was going to lead a secession, that he was going to invade Mexico. His prosecutor in Kentucky tried to prosecute him for creating a war with a nation with whom we were at peace, Spain. Uh, He brought his case to a grand jury. Burr opposed it. The grand jury concluded that they should not bring any charges against Burr. In fact, they brought back a report denouncing the prosecutor, basically saying, why are you wasting our time with this? But it caused a problem with his recruitment. People began to question what he was really up to. Another man who had been recruited by Burr, a fellow named William Eaton, issued a very uh, uh, controversial statement claiming that Burr had said he was going to conduct a coup d'etat in Washington, was going to throw Congress and the President out of office. If Burr ever said that to him, he was either drunk or horsing around. It's not very good horsing around um, for a former Vice President, but he never did anything to cause that to happen. But obviously this caused his reputation further damage, made people that much more leery of going off with him. And then President Jefferson finally issued a proclamation, not naming Burr in particular, but saying there are men out west who are looking to cause trouble for this country and no good American should do anything to support them. Indeed, Jefferson had been getting warnings from friends out west and from federal officials out west for 16 months and had ignored them all. One of the puzzles about this story is why was President Jefferson asleep? There is no good answer for that. Um, He offered a few on his own afterwards as justification. So by the time the expedition is ready to set off, Burr is not at Blennerhassett Island. He's rushed off to Nashville because General Jackson down there, Militia General Andrew Jackson, is a key part of his plan. Jackson controls 1,100 militiamen in Tennessee He's already put them on high alert to join uh, an invasion of Mexico. And he's getting cold feet because he's hearing these bad things about Burr. Burr rushes off to try to keep Jackson in the program. He's not successful. Jackson withdraws, thereby saving his career. Um, so when they leave Blennerhassett Island, Burr is not with them. He finally meets up with them in Illinois. Uh, let's see if I can find it. It's down here near uh, Fort Massac, where the Cumberland River from Tennessee flows into the Ohio right before the Mississippi. There's only about 100 men. This is a huge disappointment. But Burr is committed. He's going to go forward. He calls all the men around him, many of whom he's never met. And this is the moment. This is the, the moment of drama. This is when he says on to Mexico, glory or death, greatness, riches await us. And right before he starts speaking, he notices that there are other people there. People from the area have come down to see what's going on. There's 100 guys on the shore, and a former vice president of the United States. This is the frontier. It's sort of odd and interesting, and they want to see what's happening. So instead of giving this in- inspirational speech, Burr says, well, you see all these other people there. I can't tell you why we're here. That's it. They get on the boats and they keep going. I always, at this moment, feel like, you know, you want to grab these guys by the lapel and say, why are you getting back in the boat with this man? I mean, (laughs) he can't tell you? Uh, And later on when he's on trial, Chief Justice Marshall very much focuses on this moment and basically says, if he were not up to no good, he could have told them what they were there for, um, which is sort of hard to argue with. They continue down the river. And finally, just above uh, uh, Natchez, they are met by the Mississippi militia. Now what's happened is Wilkinson was out here in the western part of Orleans territory, faced off against the Spaniards, because there is an argument. Here it's, oh boy, now we're in trouble. (laughs) Uh, I'm not gonna keep pressing things, all right. Yes. It just if you get the full screen back, it'd be great. Um, the cross-hatched area down there was disputed territory. This is what I was describing. They didn't know where the uh, uh, borders, there we go, thank you, of Louisiana territory were. Uh, Wilkinson's there with a couple of hundred soldiers, faced off against a couple of hundred Spanish soldiers. He could have started a war. This was the moment Burr was waiting for. If there'd been a war everything Burr was after could have happened and indeed at that moment this is in October of 1806 Wilkinson gets a letter from Burr it's a famous letter it's the cipher letter it's in code and it says everything I was saying Burr should have told his men on the shore to Mexico and glory this is I am ready I am coming let's go and Wilkinson doesn't do anything He thinks about it for a day and then two days he thinks about it for a week. And finally he decides, you know, it's been fine being a double agent, but I don't actually want to be an insurrectionist. So he becomes a triple agent and he double-crosses Burr. (laughs) He sits down and writes a letter full of lies to President Jefferson and creates a false document to send President Jefferson basically ratting out Burr. And he can, of course, rat him out because he was in on the Confederacy. He knows what's going on. And then he rushes back to New Orleans where he uh, arrests all of Burr's agents in New Orleans and sends some of them back east to face trial. Now, if he actually wanted to intercept Burr, where he would have gone was Natchez. But he didn't. He wanted to go to New Orleans so he could shut up the people he needed to shut up and destroy the evidence he needed to destroy. And instead, it's the Mississippi militia that meet Burr. He's met by several hundred militia members. He's only got 100 guys. He knows Wilkinson has uh, turned on him. It's in the newspaper. And it's not a conspiracy. Uh, And uh, he gives himself up. He's hauled before a grand jury in Natchez. And once again, a grand jury listens to the evidence. Let's Colonel Burr free, basically, with the message that, you know, an invasion of Mexico is okay with them. Um, The judge keeps Burr on bail, which was a surprise to Burr. He thought he would be released. He doesn't want to hang around. He is afraid that Wilkinson is going to try to have him killed. That's not a crazy idea. Wilkinson has actually sent four plainclothes uh, agents to Mississippi to capture Burr. So Burr heads off into the woods. He's finally, two weeks later, arrested in the woods wearing a frontiersman's outfit. He was a very natty dresser, so this was a, a, a greatly humorous thing for his contemporaries. And uh-huh. he's dragged back to, uh, to Richmond to face trial here. And the reason he's brought to Richmond is that President Jefferson now is desperate to have Burr uh, convicted. Uh, he really wants... Uh, Burr to be punished. After all of his months of not reacting to Burr, he becomes extraordinarily active. He's personally involved in every part of the trial. He sent, over, uh, he sent about two dozen letters to the, uh, lawyer, uh, the prosecutor here in Richmond. They wanted to try it in Richmond because they didn't trust the juries out west. They were probably right about that. But it got them in a lot of trouble coming back here to Richmond. The first problem was this gentleman who if there is a hero to this story, for me it is this person, of course, Chief Justice John Marshall. Um, Any federal trial in Richmond was going to be before Chief Justice John Marshall. This is a time when Supreme Court Justices heard trials or presided over trials, and he was the Supreme Court Justice assigned to Virginia. Um, I want to note that I gave a talk recently where someone in the audience said that he thought this image looked a good deal like Regis Philbin, um, and if, if you think so, please keep it to yourself. Um, I, f- I find that disturbing. Um, it was, it, it, as most of you know, in this country, in every century we have about a dozen trials of the century. And this was our first trial of the century. And you have a former Vice President of the United States on trial for treason facing hanging it's a big deal. The lawyers who were assembled were an extraordinary team of talent. Uh, The lead prosecutor, George Hay, uh, became James Monroe's uh, son-in-law and a federal judge here in Richmond. Uh, His uh, most distinguished prosecutor was a fellow named William Wirt, who was the youngest prosecutor at the time, became Attorney General for 12 years. Uh, The defense team included Edmund Randolph and Luther Martin, both delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Charles Lee, a former attorney general, as was Edmund Randolph. Uh, John Wickham was the finest lawyer in Richmond, probably the second best lawyer in the room. The best lawyer was really Burr himself. He was a great lawyer, and he did a great job at this trial. Um, arguably, though, the best lawyer was, was this fellow, Marshall. Um, th- there were critical legal issues at stake which have stayed with us for two centuries since. Um, The central one was the constitutional definition of treason. Treason is the only crime that is defined in the Constitution. Uh, The framers of the Constitution were very troubled by the abuse of treason prosecutions by the kings of England. Uh, It was a very loose uh, legal construct and was used uh, to oppress people based on almost no evidence. And so they wrote in a very restrictive definition. Treason consisted of Uh, giving aid and comfort to the enemy or uh, levying war against the government and he had to have either a confession or two witnesses to an overt act of treason. Extremely demanding. Um, We had a couple of treason trials in this country in the 1790s out of those tax rebellions in Pennsylvania that I mentioned and actually the judges in those cases did not apply the constitutional definition of treason. They used the old lax uh, British law. This is the first trial where the constitutional definitions applied, Marshall applied it strictly. He was very tough on the prosecutors. He kept saying, where is your overt act of treason? And the prosecutors kept not being able to demonstrate it because, if you think back, they had to claim that this treason happened on Blennerhassett Island because that's the only thing that happened in the state of Virginia. And they were trying him in Virginia. Well, Burr wasn't in... Blennerhassett Island. He was down talking to Andrew Jackson. So, although Jefferson was a much better politician than Burr, he was not a very good lawyer. And he put together, this is really a rookie mistake, and there was, in fact, not much way they could actually have, before a real court, uh, convicted Burr. And uh, Marshall was very strict in applying this standard. The government had over a hundred witnesses available. He basically cut them off after f- the first fourteen witnesses, basically said if you don't have anybody else to an overt act of treason, this, is going, this case is going to the jury. Other legal issues that came up in the case were the meaning of the habeas corpus provision because the people Wilkinson had arrested in New Orleans when they got to Washington and Baltimore immediately demanded uh, their release under the habeas corpus clause of the comp- Constitution. Marshall's opinion in that those cases is still the starting point for us in habeas corpus clause. All of the cases of the Guantanamo detainees we've had over the last 10 to 12 years all began with John Marshall's opinion in Henry Bowman. Third issue was uh, executive privilege. One of the first things Byrd did when he reached Richmond was send a subpoena to the president saying, I want records of all your correspondence with James Wilkinson. Well... Jefferson said, wait, I'm the president. I don't need to do that. And Burr took it to Chief Justice Marshall, and Marshall said, well, he's the president, but he's not the king. And he has to explain why it is contrary to the public interest for any of these things not to be produced. So in the Nixon impeachment case, in the Clinton impeachment case, and frankly, in the Solyndra loan, loan scandal, that's a central issue. Is executive privilege, because there are some things the president doesn't have to cough up, but some things he does. And that law was first established in Burr's case. Now, the final verdict did come back from a jury, and you have to appreciate what the jury was like. They were, in fact, exactly the jury Jefferson had hoped for. They had a terrible time finding unbiased jurors. It took days and days and days, and finally Burr said, I'll just take the next four jurors. (laughs) So they're swearing in the next four, and one of the guys says, wait a second, I just said this man should be hanged. I can't serve as his juror. And Burr said, I don't care. (laughs) And that's because he knew he was only gonna be before friends of Jefferson and his own personal political enemies, and he was trying his case to John Marshall, not to his jury. And the final verdict that came back, and the the verdict form is over in the Library of Virginia, it's a wonderful document to see, Um, says that the defendant was not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us. It's a verdict that just drips with disappointment. They really did want to convict him, but there wasn't much evidence. And that was not an accident because, to be blunt, Burr had buried a lot of the evidence. Uh, He and Wilkinson both had correspondence from each other that did not get into the case. In fact, both of them, and it's sort of amazing to read and appalling, they both say, well, no gentleman could release the confidential correspondence of another gentleman. It's bizarre, but they get away with it. So they don't produce their own correspondence. Burr had a number of Confederates who could have testified as to what he was really doing, but several of them were also indicted for treason and understandably chose not to testify. And a couple of them were not indicted for treason but still chose not to testify. There's a wonderful exchange with a fellow named Eric Baldman, who had described this whole plan to Jefferson in the White House while he was under arrest for treason. Um, and Baldwin, uh, uh So... Uh, Jefferson sent to the prosecutor a, a handful of uh, blank pardon ap- uh, forms, just signed, and the prose- he said, fill them in for whoever you need to. And uh, the prosecutor tried to give Bowman the pardon form, and, and Bowman said, I don't need it, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm innocent, and by the way, I assert my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. That, yes, there is an inconsistency there, but uh, you're allowed to do that. And he was allowed to do that. So as a result, we did not get in the trial the testimony of the people close to Burr who knew what was going on. Um, now here I this is Burr afterwards, some years afterwards. Uh, he went off to Europe after the acquittal. He at first there was a period of, of well-deserved depression he went through. And then uh, he, he went off to Europe to try to persuade the British to underwrite him in an expedition to uh, uh, liberate Spanish uh, colonies in America. The uh, British passed on that and then he went to France, tried to get them to do it. Uh, after four years abroad, really in bitter poverty, uh, he comes back to New York and ends up practicing law in New York. Uh, for the next 20 years, uh, raises a house full of children, several of of them probably his own illegitimate children, um, and lives quite quietly. Um, It is an amazing adventure story, but it also had real consequences for this country. Um, Secession would continue to be an idea that would come up to Americans periodically. Clearly, 50 years later, uh, we fought a war over that. Um, But this was an important moment. Burr invited the dissolution of the country and the country said no thank you. I think it put secession into a very negative context uh, where it required some other motivating force uh, to be revived. The legal traditions that come out of the Marshall opinions I've described were terribly important for us, but above all was this notion that Marshall really established in a trial the way you can only do in a trial that it doesn't matter if the president is desperate to get somebody convicted it doesn't matter if this man is the most despised man in America he's going to get the protections that the law guarantees him the courts are independent and they're gonna protect your rights and that's a lesson we have to learn really in every generation but John Marshall was the first one to stand up for that also though I think you have to acknowledge give the devil his due that Burr's geopolitical vision was a true one. All of these lands out west were there for the taking and whoever took them in whatever form he took them was going to win glory for generations after. Andrew Jackson conquered Florida in 1818. That was a big part of his campaign for the presidency ten years later. Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott invaded Mexico following exactly the routes that Burr had proposed to follow. They uh, won huge chunks of territory. Taylor ended up as president of the United States. Scott was the Whig candidate for president, although he failed. Um, Sam Houston led the independence movement in Texas, was the founding father of that nation. Indeed, one of the symmetrical moments in American history happens in 1835, just a year before Burr dies, when he reads in the newspaper about the Texas Independence Movement, and he says, see, see, I was right. What was treason in me is patriotism now. I was just 30 years ahead of my time. And it was vindication of a sort, but for Aaron Burr, it came very late. Thank you very much. If you have questions, we do have people with microphones who can give you a proper platform for your questions. Whatever happened to the other arch-villain, Wilkinson? Uh, almost nothing. Uh, he continued to serve as general in chief of the Army. Jefferson was stuck with him. Um, What uh, My next project is on Madison. One of the things that's disturbing to me is that Madison kept him in the job, and it wasn't a secret. I mean, it wasn't that people had tremendous, you know, documentary evidence of that he was an agent for Spain, but people knew. It was too small a country. The West was too small a place. People knew that he was a double agent, and he was retained in that job. Um, He finally uh, was forced (laughs) by events to uh, actually lead troops in battle during the War of 1812. He led them in uh, upstate New York. Uh, It was a supposed invasion of Canada that didn't actually work, and it it went very badly, and finally Wilkinson was relieved of command. Um, But he was court-martialed three times and acquitted each time. Um, He is a a catastrophe. the uh the question of uh, treason uh, and the two witnesses are uh, uh, moving ahead to the Vietnam War when there was a lot of treason taking place who who could bring charges of treason Well that's a big subject uh. There are actually state treason statutes as well as federal treason statutes. So we've had some state treason prosecutions over the years. A lot were brought against union people back in the late 19th century or early 20th century. Um, We had treason cases out in the Southwest uh, against uh, Mexicans. Um, So you just needed to be a prosecutor with jurisdiction over the, uh, the individual and the alleged events It appears that
0: Blennerhassett is the one who suffered from all of this because his house was burned and he had to flee to New Orleans and then I think he left the country temporarily before he came back here. Can you
1: talk about that a minute? Sure. Uh, Blennerhassett has a terrible uh, ending to his life and blames Burr and he's right. Um, there are a lot of people who blame Burr for their uh, bad endings. Um, he, one of the things I don't talk about much because I can't is, you know, where did he get the money for all this? Um, and it's pretty clear he got a lot of loans from people who <laughs> trusted him and uh, never got repaid. Uh, when he got to Richmond, he was met by about, uh, he's in chains, uh, and he's met by like 30 creditors who are, um, uh, and they sue him in all the Richmond courts. It was a field day for the Richmond lawyers. Um, and, uh, but he hasn't got anything. Uh, indeed, he ends up giving away family portraits to try to satisfy a couple of debts. Um, Blenner Hassett uh, goes down to Mississippi uh, and tries to make a go of it there. Um, he doesn't have any luck. Uh, he's a very sort of silly figure at some level, and I don't mean to be cold about it, but he doesn't belong out in the, uh, in the big world. Uh, he's this bookish guy who would spout Greek, and his, I, I feel this poignantly since i am terribly nearsighted myself, but he was so nearsighted that he'd hold books this close to him to read, you know, out in the frontier, that was a problem. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to shoot your dinner when you can't see it. Um, so he really was in the wrong place. Uh, and uh, uh, his family uh, uh, had a series of tragedies. It's a very sad story.
0: simple question. What happened to uh, Burr's daughter?
1: Oh, you know, I was just standing here thinking, I hope they ask about Theodosia. Uh, <laughs> not because it's a wonderful story, but it, it's a good part of the story to know, and it's it's, it's sad. Uh, Burr's passion for his daughter was real. Uh, she was the only person in the world he really cared about after his wife died. Um, and when he's in Europe, he writes, he keeps a journal for the first time. It's an amazing document. This secretive man suddenly is confiding all of his thoughts on paper. And they're fascinating, they're, they're witty, they're self-deprecating, they're fun. You finally get, I found, I finally got a feel for the human being there. When he's in Europe for four years, doesn't see her. Um, he finally gets back in late 1812. Uh, and first thing he does is send a man to South Carolina to bring her to to him in New York. Uh, she has married a, a very, the wealthiest man in South Carolina. Uh, they've had one son who has just recently died at the age of 11 of a fever which is a great tragedy there. She, her health has been bad. Um, her mother died prematurely from what appears to have been a, some sort of uterine cancer and it seems like Theodosia was had a similar problem. Um, She'd been under a doctor's care for years. Um, And she and this escort get on a ship in Georgetown, South Carolina, and the ship is never seen again. And there is a story of Burr uh, haunting the piers and wharves of New York for the uh, ship. Uh, He writes to his son-in-law, I am severed from the human race. it's hard to imagine a greater tragedy, but the guy was resilient and he did live another 23 years and raised some children and uh, carried on. But uh, there's a, there are many legends about Theodosia that she was taken by pirates, um, all sorts of things that are utterly unproved, but it, it's a sad story. Thank you very much.